Hosea, the book of Hosea. If you want to turn there with me, we will be in chapter four this morning. <clears throat> Hosea chapter four. You'll notice that as we progress through the rest of the book of Hosea, that there is a different interaction, so to speak. Uh, in the first few chapters, God used the marriage of Hosea and Gomer to illustrate his relationship with Israel and Israel's adultery and their idolatry. And in chapter four, that shifts, that changes. We have God directly speaking through the prophet. The metaphor is put aside um, and Hosea is dealing in a more, what we would interpret to be a more traditional uh, interaction as a prophet. And so the, the, the tenor through the rest of the book is somewhat different, but it's the same. God has given the illustration. He's made the metaphor. He's shown what's happening. And now he begins to deal with his people uh, very frankly, very, very directly. So let's begin here. In verse 1, he says, Hear the word, children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Um, he says to hear the word of the Lord. We have this clear understanding that this is something that God is doing, that he is speaking. Um, the prophet Hosea here tips his hand to use the phrase, uh, indicating that he now speaks directly to Israel and that the metaphors are dispensed with. Now, um, this isn't a dispute of a morally offended, upright person. But we have to understand that this isn't, and whenever we read these prophecies, uh, the, the interactions of these prophets in the Old Testament and even the, the few that we encounter in the New Testament, we're not dealing with a morally offended person. Hosea is, while he is an upright man, while he is a moral man, he's not the one speaking. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God says the prophet that speaks presumptuously, he speaks without uh, me directing him to speak. Though he may be correct in his interpretation of what is happening around him, he may be correct in his, uh, this is what God has said would happen. All of those things may be correct, but if God didn't direct him to speak, he was speaking presumptuously. And that man would be a false prophet. They fall into that category. This is God speaking directly through Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, he says. Not the, not the dispute or the ramblings of a morally upright person. And I think that in many respects, we have to understand that because we, as we study through the book of Hosea, as we, uh, uh, in training our worldview and all those things that we, we do regularly, we want to be more, and I want to be careful in, in the understanding that I'm conveying here, we want to be more than an offended, morally upright person. We want to be standing on the truth of God's word confronting people with truth, as he has called us to do, as he calls us to do it. 
in the method, in the, in the means, in the opportunities that are put before us. We do it in God's timing. So he says that he has a controversy with his people. The word controversy here, it means a dispute or a case at law. God is laying out, you know, and, and you see in those, uh, those movies where there's a trial going on and the lawyer gets to stand up and he presents his initial argument. His, his, this is the case that we're going to make. That's what God is doing here in Hosea chapter 4. He's laying out that initial case, that initial argument. This is what I have against Israel. We've talked about it. He's illustrated it. Now he's stating it plainly. And something that occurs to me as we look at this, here is God making accusation, and he's perfect. He's holy, he's just, he's righteous. The question that I ask, that I pose for you and I, is by what standard do we accuse anyone around us? By what standard? As we, as we were talking about worldview this morning, and I asked the question, as we read through these definitions, is there any of these that, that strike us? And there was a couple that stood out. Um, some in, in a negative sense, some in a positive sense, some just by way of uh, this is something that we need to be wary of, something that we need to be careful about. But anything other than the standard of the Word of God would be presumptuous on our part. So, for example, if we judge somebody because they have different political views and we judge them for their political views as opposed to the word of God, we have presumptuously judged that we've used a standard that is not the standard of God. So we want to be careful about that. Is it by the perfect word of God or is it by man's perfect and frankly, morally flexible standard? If we're going to be those who are standing upon truth, what truth are we standing on? We want to ensure that it's the Word of God. Can you click that for me? All right. So there's verse 1. God says, I have a controversy. I have a uh, case against the inhabitants of the land, against my people. And he begins to lay that case out. Um, and the, the first thing that we encounter, he's, he says, there is no truth no truth. The word truth here, it means steadfastness. Now, it also means truth. It can also mean truth, but it means steadfastness. Now, we remember that as we studied through the word obedience in Bible study last year, I think that was last year, whenever we studied through that, the, the Hebrew understanding of obedience is hear and do. It's here and do. That's obedience. This is what God has said. Now we're going to go and do it. And so here is God's accusation that there is no truth. There is no steadfastness. There is no purpose or intent to hear what God has said and to do it. There is a lack of faith. There is no trust in God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Excuse me, Romans chapter 10. Sorry, Romans 10, verse 17. It says, So then faith cometh by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. Now, we understand that as God in, interacts with people, that that source of truth, as he's conveyed it to us, is accurately and completely wholly recorded in the Bible. The word of God. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't encounter faith. We don't grow in faith. We don't develop faith through any other mechanism other than the word of God growing within us. Leading us to that, here's what God has said, and now I'm going to purpose to do it. Joshua and Caleb are a great example. As the nation of Israel comes into the promised land, they send those spies in. There is this command to go in. Yet we choose to follow these 10 who don't believe God. There is no steadfastness. There is no purpose or intent to hear what God has said and to do it in the land. He also says there is no mercy or, or kindness. There's no mercy. In other words, there's self-serving heart. That the intent is to get out of this whatever I can get out of this. In the book of Amos, in uh, I believe it's chapter 9, might not be chapter 9, but he's talking about the, the, the summer fruit in that particular chapter. We've been there before. We'll remember that Amos is a contemporary prophet with, with Hosea, that they were ministering to the nation of Israel both at the same time. And as he talks about that, one of the things that is discussed in that particular passage is that there is this desire. Listen, we're going through the motions. We want the Sabbath to be over because we want to go and make merchandise. How quickly can I get to where I can go sell those things again that I was selling? There's a motivation there that is unmerciful. In other words, and, and it goes on to describe them taking advantage. You remember that when Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers, he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And part of what was happening there is that as you exchanged your money or you went in and you bought the, the sacrifice because it was too far to travel with that sacrifice, this was permissible in the law of God. You would, you would take your money instead of your, your offering because to drive that animal 200 miles was impractical. This is all, God spells this out for us in the Old Testament. He says, this is what we can do. You take your money and you buy your sacrifice when you get there. Right? But you have to buy a specific sacrifice. You have to buy something that is without spot or blemish. You have to, so we've, we find artificially inflated prices, right? That here it is, people are being taken advantage of. We're not going to sell this animal for what we would normally sell it for. This is a temple animal, or this is money that we're going to exchange so that this person can make a sacrifice they realize the position that you're in, and so therefore they take advantage of. There's no mercy. There's a self-serving heart. What can I get out of this interaction? Not how can I serve or how can I interact in an equitable manner? In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He's shown the old man what does God require of thee? And he continues on and he says to, uh, he showed the old man what is good and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy. 
to, to love and to espouse the idea that I can serve in my interactions with other people, that I cannot take advantage, that I can show kindness in everything that I do. Now, I'm not saying, nor is God saying that we shouldn't uh, make a profit on the things that we're selling or buying. Those are just illustrations. But we do so equitably. We do so kindly in a way that both people walk away, we're satisfied, and they're satisfied. In Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, you'll turn there with me, verses 30 through 34. We find Jesus giving us the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he begins, he says, he, he's speaking, he says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this man's in a terrible plight. He's been robbed. He's, he's even destitute of all the clothes that he had. They, those have been taken from him. He's been stabbed or, or hurt in whatever manner he's been hurt in, and he's left for dead. They're expecting him to die. They left him on the side of the road. And Jesus is using this parable to give us this illustration about mercy, about kindness, about showing love to those who are around us. He continues on, and by chance, verse 31, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here is a priest. This is one of the people that would have known the Word of God, would have known what God had said, and should have, had he been operating in truth, hear and obey. I trust that God would have called me, that God would have expected me to have shown kindness. But it says that he passed by. He ignored the plight of this man. He clearly saw him, but he chose to ignore. He chose to not walk in mercy. I can't be inconvenienced. I can't fall prey to the inconvenience or the, the potential for disrupting whatever is happening in my life today so that I might help this person. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. The priest would have been more like the judge, a San, part of the Sanhedrin. Levite would obviously be the priest. I know that because the Levites were priests. But there's a priest and a judge. We're going to talk about the priest here in a little while. Actually, next week, that'll be more clear. But here we have these two people both versed in the law of God, both understanding exactly what God would require of them in this circumstance, choosing to not walk in truth, choosing not to show mercy. Yet here Jesus gives an example. He says, but a certain Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans will remember, I'll just give you the quick rundown. When Israel goes into exile in Assyria, there's some troubles. And so the king of Assyria says, listen, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to fill Israel with our own people. And not only that, we're going to send some of their priests down there so that they'll know how to worship the gods of that land. So we have this intermingling. They end up marrying, uh, and you have these half-Jewish, half-Assyrian people. Those are the Samaritans. That's where they came from. That's how they came to be. And they are hated. They are disdained. They are worse than animals in Israel's mind. At this point in, in Jesus' day, that is how they are viewed. And so Jesus specifically chooses 
the, the San, part, part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, legal class, so to speak, the priesthood, the Levites, these two guys, the, the, these are spiritual men. And he chooses to compare them very specifically to something that is considered to be worse than an animal. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He chose to show mercy. And his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then not only that, he provides for him to stay there for a period of time until he's all healed up. Fully bankrolling the entire thing. And Jesus' question to his audience is, who showed compassion? Who showed love? Who extended mercy that should be characteristic of my people? It wasn't one of my people. It was one outside of my people that chose to do that. So God accuses them of first, there is no truth. There is no obedience. There is no founding in the word of God. There's no steadfastness or purpose or intent to walk in obedience. There is no mercy. There is no compassion being shown. There is no kindness in dealings and interactions with one another. Third, he says, there is no knowledge of God. There's no knowledge of God in the land. We understand and we remember that when Jeroboam, the first sort of founded of Israel, God was doing something there, obviously, but he started it, and then his mechanism of control was to remove the priesthood, remove worship of the true and living God, and replace it with the worship of these two calves that he had made, with these idols. And he established his own priesthood in the nation of Israel. We're going to talk about that next week. But there's no knowledge of God. Now, this is, the nation, this is Israel. They live just over here is Judah, who are God's people. And we all know that those are the two tribes that, that are over there that, that remain faithful to David and his lineage. But over here, we are the other 10 tribes, and we're unfaithful to that lineage. They know what Judah worships. They know what they should be worshiping. And all throughout Israel's history, we have this interaction while they're rooted and founded, and there is a mixing or a syncretizing of Judaism and all of their pagan gods. They do know the truth. They choose to ignore it. They choose not to expand it. They choose not to engage in it. And nothing new, and there's nothing new today. In Romans 1.28, I'll just read it to you this morning. Uh, you can write it down, Romans 128. Uh, we could have looked at a lot of verses in Romans 1 and 2, but in Romans 128, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. They're part of God's chosen people. They have the same history and heritage. They, they understand that this is the God that delivered us from bondage in Egypt. This is the God that uh, honored David and Solomon. This is the God that we should worship. But we're not founded upon that. We're, we, don't, we choose not 
to retain him in our knowledge. We choose to ignore him. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verses 54 through 59. As we go to the New Testament, as we look at these things, I want to just point out that as we look at Israel as a kingdom, Right, we understand that after the Babylonian captivity, they come back in. There's a reunification of the kingdom. Now there's only one kingdom, no more, no more Israel and Judah. They come back, and there's only the nation of Israel as a people group. They're, they have one king ruling over them, sort of one king. You have the Romans and their puppet kings. I mean, there's there's a lot happening there in history, but to oversimplify, there's one king now. There's one kingdom. But in many respects, what what God is talking about this, is, and as we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, this future restoration of Israel, we're still in that expecting period. They still haven't come back. They're still choosing not to acknowledge or to retain God in their knowledge. So when Jesus interacts with these people, he's interacting with them in that same understanding. In that same point where here we are, we are worshiping God. We have priesthood. We have, we've built the temple again. We've done these things. There's been ups and downs in their history. But ultimately, they've made the law of God of no effect. Jesus condemns the, the Pharisees because they're, they're more zealous about keeping their own rules and keeping the law of God. They neglect the weightier matters of the law for the sake of for the sake of status. John chapter 8 verses 50, beginning verse 54 he says if i honor myself my honor is nothing it is my father that honors me of whom you say that he is your god. Right Jesus is here confronted he he's he's honoring god and he's clearly making the statement that he is the son of god. There is a very distinct and a clear understanding on the part of his audience about what he is claiming. Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be God himself, to be equal with God in this passage. Don't miss that. But he makes a statement, you claim that my father is your God. That's your claim. Yet, you have... He makes this clear fact. You claim that he's your God, but you don't know him. But I know him. And if you should say, I know him not, I shall, be a, uh, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Right here is this connection between knowing God and walking in obedience, walking in that truth, choosing by faith to operate in accordance with what God has said, Jesus is making the same accusations against the nation of Israel that Hosea was making as he spoke on behalf of God to the people. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In Hebrews chapter 11, the first few verses, uh, Abraham we have the definition of faith, but we have this discussion about Abraham. He was looking forward to in faith. 
He saw it in the sense that he operated in trust. He operated in truth by faith that God was going to deliver on the promises that he had made. Verse 57, then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said, and verily, verily, I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. Using that term that God would use uh, as he described himself to Moses, I am that I am, a clear not only did he say, I'm the son of God, but now he is saying, I am. Before Abraham existed, before I called you to be my people, I was and I am the true and living God. Then they took up stones to cast at him. And why were they going to do that? Because that's what you do for those who blaspheme. They're stoned, they're put to death. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Jesus interacts with these, uh, and as he does so, he makes the same accusation, that there is no knowledge of God, that they don't retain God in their knowledge. They say that they know him, but their works and the way that they act and behave and conduct themselves, that lack of truth and that lack of mercy, betray a heart that is far from him. Ultimately, Jesus would make the accusation, God would make the accusation, to sum it up very simply, there is no difference between you and the world. Which is a significant statement because God had called them to be something very different. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. In this chapter, right before Exodus 20, where God gives them the Ten Commandments, there is the initiation of a covenant with Israel. They've just recently been delivered out of Egypt, and as they uh, enter into this covenant with God, he makes a very direct statement about what they should look like as a nation. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, so there's this obedience, right? The outward expression is reflecting the purpose and the intent inside. If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So they're going to be a special treasure, something that God would, uh, to personify God, unfortunately, something that he would covet and retain. He would keep it as a treasure to himself. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. People that are going to enter into this covenant with God will be different. You'll be a holy nation, something that is set apart for the purposes of God, something that is set apart and used. He says there'll be a nation of priests, those intermediaries, so to speak, between God and man that representative of him and his relationship, his example people. That's what God tells them they'll be. There should be a distinct difference because of the way they're conducting themselves. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. 
There is a distinction. God has chosen the nation of Israel as his special people, and they are to be an example to the world around them. They don't worship the same gods. They don't do the same things. They keep special feasts and holidays. They do all of these things uh, through sacrifice and all of all the things that are uh, required in the Levitical law as an example to the people around them. And not only that, as an example to you and I. Here is a clear foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, the redemptive purpose of God for mankind. Yet these very people that God chose to use as his illustration don't want to retain him in their knowledge. They're simply going through the motions. By the time we get to the book of Isaiah in, in history and his interactions, God, in the first chapter of that particular book, through the prophet Hosea, condemns Judah the kingdom of Judah, because they're simply going through the motions. They draw near me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Israel is already there. They're, they're decades and centuries ahead of Judah. But nonetheless, we talked about that slippery slope. It's where they end up. And it's where Israel, in many respects, abides even to this day where they don't want to acknowledge what God has clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. So God makes this case. Now, we're not going to go through and make point one, point two, and point three through the rest of this chapter. But just understand the entire chapter is a case. We're going to finish it maybe next week. Maybe, maybe it takes two more weeks. Let's look at in verse 2. He says, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. Swearing or killing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery, they break out. That term break out, it's like an animal that breaks through a fence or, or something. That's literally what it means. So here they are, they break out. Ultimately, here are the quote-unquote bonds that we hold as God's people. We're going to break out of those and we're going to indulge ourselves in the pursuit of sinfulness. We're going to run after and we're going to curse and lie and kill and steal and commit adultery. We're going to engage in those things. In James chapter 4, we read uh, not very long ago as we studied through that book, James chapter 4 Verse 1, from whence come wars and fightings among you, come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members. Right Here it is, the suffering, the hardship, all of the things that Israel is about to reap are a consequence of the sinfulness that they have indulged themselves in. There's nothing new under the sun that remains true even to this day. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. God told the nation of Israel, his people, all the way back when, if you keep my covenants, if, you, if, we, if we agree here and you keep that, you're into the bargain, then you'll reap this blessing. If you don't, these are the curses. This is the problem that you will encounter. And we looked at that in the very beginning as we studied, kicked off this book in Hosea. God offers a gentle reproof in verse 3. It says, therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. There is a quiet reproof. 
we speak generally about the sinfulness of Israel, right? We, we, we take all of Israel and we, we put it into one group. But certainly there were some who desired to serve God in the midst of this. Not In general terms, Israel is sinful and idolatrous and adulterous to God. But inevitably, there were those who were faithful. We have at least two, at least Hosea and Amos, and probably more, because as you read through the book of Amos, you find that there are interactions that he has with those who are faithful. So there are even, there are those within Israel who are faithful. Keep that in mind. God mercifully tries to reprove Israel. There's a period of time in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis, let's just turn there for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, God tries to reprove Israel gently before all of this happens. That's done with. We already know that from the first chapter as we look at some of the, the names of one of his children. No more mercy. But in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of mankind. We have this first engagement in sin. We have the, the temptation by the serpent, Adam and Eve yielding to that. And we read in verse 16 through 19 the consequences that God gives. In the beginning, God made everything, and at the end of his creation, he deemed it to be very good. It was, in fact, perfect, without flaw, without any corruption by sin. And here we pick it up in verse 16 of Genesis 3. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and, they des and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. So there's some specific and direct for the woman. We can leave that alone for our purposes this morning. We just need to know that it happened. And Adam, there's specific and direct Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. God tells Adam, he says, listen, the consequence that you are going to experience, and remember that God has already tasked Adam with dominion, to be the steward of what he has created. He, he's already been given them. That was part of his responsibility, part of his job, the work that he had to do was to take care of what God had made. In a perfect environment, that's probably not as monumental a task as it sounds. He didn't have to water anything. God was already watering everything by that mist that would come up every night. Every, I mean, perfect amount of water for everything in every place. It was handled. Dominion and the stewardship of that looked very different than it does today. He goes on and he describes, listen, Adam, the, there will be sweat of thy brow. There's going to be thorns and thistles. In other words, God cursed the land as a result of sinfulness. As a consequence for Adam and indulgence in sin. And in the same way, he tells the nation of Israel, he says, listen, the, therefore the land shall the land mourn. The land is going to be cursed in many respects. God says, listen, I'm going to, and he's already talked about this. In, in Hosea chapter 2, uh, verse 8, 
She did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Verse nine, therefore will I return and take away my corn. And the time there, in other words, God is not going to allow the land to bring forth those things readily, which it was bringing forth. There's going to be famine as a result. There's going to be those things, those consequences as a result of God cursing the land. This is a gentle reproof. It sounds like that, but it is a gentle reproof by comparison to what they are about to reap. They chose not to hear it. They chose not to acknowledge it or to be receptive to what God was doing. But you'll notice here also, he says, the land shall mourn and everyone that dwells therein shall languish the fowls, the fishes. When there's lack of food for people, there's lack of food for everything else. That here is creation, all of creation being subjected to something terrible as a result of the sinfulness of mankind. Just like we read about in Genesis. And not only that, he says that all will languish. Everyone. Even Amos, even Hosea, even those faithful within that country are going to languish and reap the consequence of that national indulgence of sin. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, we encounter this idea of the corruption of creation. Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature or creation, that's what the word means, creature, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. It waits for the manifestation of the sons of God, for their revealing. For the creature, the creation was made subject to vanity. It was subjected to that curse that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Who subjected that creation to that curse? God himself. And he did so in hope, knowing what was coming. That it, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So there is a redeeming of the creation that is yet to happen. For we know that the whole creature groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to the redemption of our body. So here we have everything, God subjecting all of creation to this curse as a consequence for sin. He's doing it again here in the nation of Israel. And he does so in hope. This is a reproof. This is a corrective measure. Something that God would hope we would respond to. And I want you to notice it says here, as we look in Romans chapter 8, he says not only they, not only creation, not only what happened in the past, but he says, we ourselves also, even those who are the first fruits of the Spirit, here the early church is suffering the hardship of the, the corruption of sin in the world, just like we do. Just like those righteous in the days of Hosea would. All of Israel is reaping the consequence of the sin of the majority. 
And now we may experience the same in our life. What we have to understand is that God hasn't forsaken the faithful. God didn't forsake the faithful. He didn't in Paul's day. He didn't in Israel's day. I want you to think about Esther for just a moment. Remember the book of Esther, that account. The nation of Israel, Judah, is in Babylon. They're in exile. They are being judged where they are at. Yet in the middle of all of that, we have this, this young Hebrew girl who is ultimately at the sovereign hand of God, elevated to a position of being queen. And you remember that interaction that here is Haman, this enemy of Israel, this man who for generations, his family has hated Israel for all the reasons that you can go study on your own. He was an Agagite. That's a hint. I think we've talked about this. But here they are. Haman has come up with this scheme that he can rid Babylon of the Jews. We'll get rid of all of them. We'll just allow their neighbors to do the hard work. They'll kill them themselves. And you get to keep whatever they have. This is the plan. This is what Haman has hatched. The king has signed off on it, and you can't change that. You can't uh, remove that from the law. That stands. And you remember Esther and her interaction with her cousin Mordecai. And he says, Esther, you have to beseech the king on our behalf. You have to go to him on behalf. Because how do you know if it wasn't for such a time as this, that you were brought to the position that you were in now. That you might be the one who would intercede for us. Now, Esther was still suffering the consequence of that national sin. She was still in exile. She was still separated. She now had to go upon penalty of potentially death, go to the king unrequested, unbeckoned, and hope for his favor, which she did. And ultimately, we know that that turned out well. Didn't end well for Haman, but it turned out well for God's people. Now, here's what I want you to understand from that, that you and I, we may find ourselves in the midst of judgment, whether it's national or community or familial, something within our family, or personal hardship. And what we can't separate from that potential truth is the truth that it might be in the midst of that we come to a for such a time as this moment. That God is in fact sovereign, that God is in the fact in the business of redeeming everything for our good. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. Whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in, up, down, in the midst of national judgment, though we be a righteous people, that may be the very opportunity that God has prepared us for, the very ministry that he has prepared before time began that we would walk in it. You think about Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, and here he is, and he finds himself in prison in communist country. Why was he in prison? Well, because he was all, all about evangelizing. He was about telling people about Jesus Christ. They would take copies of the Communist Manifesto, pull the covers off, take Bibles, pull the covers off, put the Bible in the Communist Manifesto, 
cover and they would deliver that to the soldiers. I mean, here he is going to literally the enemy to share the gospel with them, to give them the word of God. Ultimately, he ends up uh, in prison. He ends up tortured. He ends up, I mean, for, what was it, like 10, 10 or 11 years? It was a long period of time. For such a time as this. God is moving and even in the midst of this hardship in the nation of Israel. And there are those who are certainly righteous people, those who would certainly see God by faith. And God, in the midst of all this, has a plan and a purpose for them in this interaction, just as he would for you and I in a similar circumstance. Are we ready? Are we willing to move by faith, to trust God in that circumstance? He makes the statement in verse 4. He says, let no man strive nor reprove another, for, they, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. I want to talk about that uh, for just a moment, that striving with the priest. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you'll turn there with me. Deuteronomy 17. As the nation of Israel prepares to enter into the promised land, God lays out for them how they ought to operate. In verses 8 through 12 of Deuteronomy 17, he says, if, a, if there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up to the place where the Lord thy God shall choose. Now, ultimately, that means the tabernacle or the temple. That's, that's where you're going. Ultimately, in, in Hosea's day, you would go to Jerusalem. That's where you're going to go. You're going to go to the temple. Thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. Right? So if there is a matter too hard, if there is a complicated matter, there's strife, there's contention, you take it ultimately right to the Supreme Court. You go to the priests, they're going to make judgment about this. They are God's people. <laughs> well, yeah, all of them are God's people. They are God's spokesperson in this matter. They're the experts in the law. They're the experts in all of those things. They're going to make the final judgment. And thou shalt come unto the priests of Levites, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 10, and thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee, and thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee. They're the final authority, is what he just said according to the sense of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall uh, tell thee, thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand or to the left. You're going to do exactly what they tell you to do. If they say that you have to repay this much, you're going to repay that much. If they say that this is the consequence, you're going to be put to death, you're put to death. doesn't matter. That's exact, you do exactly what they say. They are the supreme authority in all of those legal matters. Verse 12, and the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that stands to minister there before the Lord thy God or unto the judge, even the man, even that man shall die and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. 
right? If you're unwilling to submit yourself to the judgment of the priests, of the Levites, to those people that God has established in authority, you're put to death. That's what he just said. There's a, they're, they're, they're the authority. In Malachi uh, chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. says, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Right? That is the proper understanding of the judgment that has been rendered by that priest. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. When the priest gives out that consequence, it is, this, it is as if God himself was giving out that consequence. So here we are. He says in Hosea, he says, don't try to reprove them. They're beyond hearing. They are like those who would have be at strife or who would contest the judgment of God's ordained authority, those priests. They're unwilling to hear, they're unwilling to listen, they're unwilling to submit to it. It's the highest contumacy. That's a big word. I learned it this week. It means the stubborn refusal to obey or comply with authority. It is the highest contumacy to contest with the priest. It is the ultimate act of rebellion. And God is saying, listen, this people, Israel, my people here, that is where they're at. They are unwilling to hear. They are not subject to the authority that I have established over them. In Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. Verses 7 and 8. He that reproves a scorner gets to himself shame, and he that rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he thee rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. God says in the book of Proverbs that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. There is no fear of God. There is no knowledge of God here in Israel. They don't respect, they don't they don't look or recognize the authority that he himself is. When he talks about them having a strife with the priest, God is clearly making the case that they have fully rejected and rebelled against him and him alone. That's where it's at. In Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen speaks, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Do you always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did? So do you. Unwilling to operate in truth. They're unmerciful. There is no knowledge of God. They are those who have completely and wholly rejected the authority of God. This is where they stand. This is the heart of the nation of Israel. This is the case that God is making against them. Even though he's tried time and time again to more gently reprove them, this is where they find themselves. He says in verse 5, Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, 
and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. When we talk about mother, that's a reference to the nation, the kingdom. That's what's being referenced here. But God destroys everything that would exalt itself against him. Day and night. That's what God is all about that business. Day and night. Nobody's getting away with it. doesn't matter where it is. Day and night, God preserves his glory. Anything that would exalt itself against his glory. Israel was walking in the dark. They were choosing to walk in the dark. In John chapter 11, so you got all you guys over here sitting in the dark because the lights are off. Pay attention, you're in the dark. <laughs> John, John chapter 11, everybody's going to sit over here next week. John chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of this world. Right? We've all been there. You get up in the middle of the night, uh, get a glass of water, whatever, and, and you, you have to navigate. And not only that, but you're navigating. You probably have your eyes closed because, you know, if I'm awake, I don't want any light getting, you know, I want to be as close to sleep as possible while on my feet so that I'm as close to sleep as possible when my head hits the pillow again, right? So we wander around in the dark and you sort of feel your way along, but there could be any number of things that are out of place, even slightly that are gonna trip you up. But if it's daylight, if it's broad daylight, you can see everything in front of you. You can see the, the Legos that are there. You can, we, we're, we're, we're telling, uh, Abel the other day about Home Alone, the movie Home Alone, you know, all the traps that were set, right? If that was during the day, it's no problem. You can navigate all of them because you see it. You don't hit the micro machines. You don't hit the marbles and go down the stairs. You don't, I mean, you can see it. It's recognizable. But these in Israel are choosing to walk in the dark. They're choosing to stumble around with their eyes closed. They don't see the pitfalls or they're unwilling to acknowledge that they even exist. God already told him what would happen. He goes on. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleeps, he does well. Right? This is, so here is Jesus. He's interacting. Oh, excuse me. I, I read. I skipped. Verse 10. But if a man walks in the light, he stumbles because there is no light in him. Jesus is, and, and he uses that to illustrate to his disciples that they're, that they're missing the point. They're not seeing what he's trying to do in Lazarus. The nation of Israel is here stumbling around in the dark. They're unwilling to acknowledge those things that are there. They're, in fact, not only that, but they are exalting those things that would be contrary to God. Last reference here this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read verses 6 through 12. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. You can just put in your margin, Isaiah 28, 16. That's where it's found. 
Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him should not be confounded or ashamed or stumbled or tripped. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed or rejected, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Which time, which in time past were not a people, but are now a people. That's a quote from Hosea chapter uh, 2, 1. It's a quote, quote from one of those earlier chapters of Hosea. Which, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold or see, glorify, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here we have the nation of Israel, and they're failing as God's example people. And God tells you and I, he says, listen, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are here that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you and I as the church are the example people to the world around us. So that when God visits them in that day, there is some foundation of understanding. That's what he said. That they would see our good works which they shall behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. Jesus would say, uh, talking about being light, he, he, he said the same thing, that the way that we live, that the way that we conduct ourselves is a witness to the world around us. And we do so so that they may glorify God. God's glory is unshareable. The nation of Israel is choosing to walk in darkness. There's a stone that has been laid out. There is some trap that has been, trap is a terrible word in this instance, but there's some trap that has been laid out there. And if they open their eyes, they won't stumble on it. If they choose to walk in light, and, and here is the light that God has in Christ revealed himself and his purpose to redeem mankind and fulfilled it completely. Yet the nation of Israel chooses to walk in darkness. And so what happens? They come along, they stub their toe, they fall. It's a stone of stumbling to them. But those who will walk in the light, who will open their eyes, they'll come to faith. They'll come to faith. And you and I who have come to faith, who have seen the light of Jesus Christ, who have now set ourselves upon that foundation, those which the builder rejected, that, that stone has now become the head of the corner, right? It is the cornerstone upon which everything else, it is the standard by which everything else goes up or down. It is the standard. Jesus himself now is the standard. His righteousness, which is perfect and holy, equal to God's, because he is God. And we find ourselves dashed upon that because we are 
wholly unrighteous. So when we come to that point where we realize our unrighteousness, we confess before the Lord that Jesus Christ is that salvation. And we're brought in, we're declared righteous by God, we're justified. By faith in him and his sacrifice alone. The nation of Israel has failed as God's example people. He's chosen you and I, that Gentile, and we've talked about this, that grafting in into the same people. We are now the church, his example. The nation of Israel has rejected him. But we who have received him are now his witnesses to a world around us. And we have the same exhortation, we have the same encouragement. He says that we are to be a peculiar people. We should walk in obedience. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. When the nation of Israel came into the promised land, they were strangers and pilgrims. They hadn't been there before. And God had specifically told them, don't do the things that these other nations are doing. Worship their gods. You and I are strangers and pilgrims. This world is not our home. We shouldn't be doing all the things that the world are doing. We should be doing those things which are customary from where we're from. From God's kingdom. We should be living in a way that, can, that, that glorifies him and makes him known. Just as Israel should have been doing. We're going to continue Hosea chapter uh, 4 next week. Maybe we'll finish. Maybe we won't. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to be in your word. We praise you, uh, Lord, that there is example here, that there is exhortation, that there is clarification of your love and your commitment to all of us. Lord, we know that everything that you have created was perfect and that you subjected it, that you made it subject to the curse in hope. It would be that illustration of your redemptive power. And Lord, we praise you that your son, Jesus Christ, that stone that was rejected by Israel is now the foundation and the standard by which everything is measured. And I thank you, Lord, for your grace that you extend to us so freely as we come to faith and trust in Jesus as the cornerstone. Lord, help us by your grace to be the witnesses that we ought to be in all that we do purposefully, in all that we do, Lord, day in and day out. Help us to be a living witness in word and in deed. We praise you now, and as we have opportunity, Father, this morning to worship and to sing praise and adoration to you for who you are and all that you have done. Father, receive it as the offering of our lips. Submitted heart before you, in Jesus' name, amen.